Welcome back, everyone. It's been a while, and the show has been on a little hiatus, but we're back again, this time for a special occasion, Valentine's Day. You know, the history of Valentine's Day itself is a pretty bloody one, actually. Long before we started giving cards and heart-shaped candies to our significant others to let them know that we choose them, the Romans were celebrating love in their own way. You know, every February 15th, they held Lupercalia, the original Valentine's Day. The holiday has gone through a few changes over the past few thousand years, but don't worry. Let me catch you up to speed. On the original Valentine's Day, the Romans kicked off the festivities by dragging two goats and a puppy into a cave and letting a group of cultish priests ritually slaughter them. The instructions were pretty specific about the puppy part. It couldn't be a mature dog. It had to be an adorable baby puppy. You know, even the Romans didn't really understand why they had to kill a puppy. The best sources we have on the holiday were written centuries after it began. By then, Lupercalia was just an old tradition and the Romans writing about it make it clear that they didn't really understand any of it. After the puppies and the goats were killed, two young noble boys were brought into the cave to do something that creeped the hell out of the Christians who ended up banning this festival. The priest boy would touch their knives to the heads of the boys, staining the boys' heads with blood. Then the priest would dip wool and milk and rub it on the boys' heads. That was kind of strange, but what really made this unnerving was what came next. With milk and blood streaking down their heads, the boys were required to feign laughter. Again, the Romans had no idea why they were making creepy blood-stained children laugh in a dark cave. The Romans believed that it was a purification ritual. But even that was just a theory. It was just a tradition that they'd been following for as long as they could remember, and they weren't about to break it. And Lupercalia also involved a feast. Although when it came to food, it wasn't exactly the best holiday. Even Roman poetry calls the Feast of Lupercalia scanty and with good cause. The priests would put the entrails of the sacrificed goats on willow spits, cook them up, and feed them to a crowd of people. Sounds tasty. Splitting two goats between all the citizens of Rome probably didn't extend that far, but that wasn't all they got. Some Vestal virgins would also burned salt cakes, which seemed to have been something like ancient pancakes, but that was the feast. A tiny bit of goat entrails on a stick and some burnt cakes. Sounds lovely. <laughs> None of that might seem particularly appealing, which is probably why the Romans served one more dish. Copious amounts of alcohol. For the rest of the day, the people of Rome would be drunk out of their minds. So if you're feeling like you want to look into some more about that, feel free to Google it and research it. 
I found it pretty interesting, and trust me, the details <laughs> get a lot, lot worse. But on this episode, we're not really going to talk about Valentine's Day per se, but the killing happened on a Valentine's Day. And the reason that I explained a little bit about Lupercalia to you is because this killing was that of a ritual or maybe just pure torture. I'll let you decide. I know it's pretty late to do an intro, but if you're new here, I'm your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti, and you're listening to Not Another Horror Podcast. The story that I'm about to tell you really kind of gives me Zodiac, Son of Sam, the town that dreaded sundown vibes, and I'm very much into it. Important side note, I'm not celebrating or glorifying the murder of real human beings, but I do take an unapologetic interest in the psychology of these kinds of crimes, the mystery, and, well, creepy vibes all around. But don't get it twisted. This story itself is very tragic. This is the story of Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann. You see, on February 12, 1971, in Durham, North Carolina, the rain is misting the night that 19-year-old Jesse McBain met his girlfriend, Patricia Mann, at her dormitory. Jesse shared a car with his brother, and it was his brother's turn to have it. But Jesse worked out a deal to switch nights so that he could take Patricia to the Valentine's Day dance at Watts Hospital in Durham. Patricia was 20 years old and studying to be a nurse at the hospital. Around 11.30 p.m., Jesse and Patricia left the dance and walked back to her dormitory so she could sign out for the night. The dorm had extended its curfew hours to 1 a.m. in order to accommodate the dance. And honestly, there's just nothing more innocent or sweet than a couple of kids needing to sign out until curfew. The sweet young couple took Jesse's car and drove down to the present-day neighborhood of Crossadal. And I'm very sorry if I butchered that. In 1971, developers had created numerous cul-de-sacs in the area, but no houses were built yet. It was the unofficial lover's lane for the nursing students who wanted a long time with their partners. The unwritten rule among the nurses was that if cul-de-sac was taken, 
you move on to the next. There were even a few couples who had unofficial spots that were theirs, if you will. The other couples would leave those open just in case the regular couple showed up at night. Again, the setting is a little innocent. And truth be told, I've always kind of wanted to uh, hook up in a lover's lane, wearing a cardigan and ribbon in my hair. <laughs> Not the ribbon. <laughs> Anyways, for Jesse and Patricia, her 1 a.m. curfew came and went. But Jesse and Patricia never came back. And that sweet, innocent, young love vibe was, for lack of a better word, shattered. Saturday morning, Patricia's roommates were concerned. She never broke curfew. She was described as a responsible young woman who took her nursing schooling very seriously and went by the rules. And Jesse, by all accounts, was a good guy who wouldn't pressure Patricia to do anything against her moral code. Now, anyone that has Discovery Plus would probably argue that, but here we are. <laughs> Patricia's roommates began looking for Patricia and Jesse, calling local hospitals. Maybe there had been a car accident. Filing a report with the Durham County Police Department and then not being about to sit on their hands waiting any longer, Patricia's friends, colleagues, and roommates decided to go out and physically look for the couple. They hit all her usual spots, including the nurse's lover's lane. Here, they would find Jesse's car parked in one of the empty cold sacks. Their coats were in the back. Nothing was in disarray. There were no signs of struggle and the car was locked. But Jesse and Patricia were nowhere to be found. With the families of Jesse and Patricia now fully aware that their children were missing, the local police department finally acted on that morning's initial missing persons report. Investigators started by working off the idea that Jesse and Patricia had eloped, skipped town, swept up in the glow of a romantic Valentine's Day. But within a day or two, it became clear to investigators that something just wasn't adding up. The math wasn't mathing. <laughs> And what started as a missing person's inquiry quickly snowballed into something much more sinister. Still, no one had any idea that this was actually a homicide investigation. Caroline Spivy is Patricia's cousin. They grew up next door to each other and were close friends. Spivy said, I just got the sickest feeling in my stomach. There's something terrible had happened. For nearly two weeks, police and search parties made up of concerned locals worked the area. Investigators followed up every lead, but constantly came up empty. On February 25th, 1971, 12 days after the couple went missing, a surveyor working in a heavily wooded area along a one-lane dirt road sees what he thinks is pieces of a mannequin, a leg sticking out of a pile of leaves. When the surveyor gets closer, 
he realizes it's a human body. Police are immediately called. The scene worked, and by the end of the day, Jesse McBain and Patricia Mann are officially identified. And this is where things get very fucking creepy. The couple have been tied to a tree, backs to the bark and their hands tied backwards with thick rope. There was rope around their heads and necks, and though they'd been secured to the tree, their bodies had slumped forward and down, leaving them side by side and partially covered by leaves. Jesse was still wearing his class ring and watch, so police determined this was not a robbery. The medical examiner found no evidence of sexual assault on Patricia. Patricia had internal injuries from being punched, kicked, or stumped. Further, there were multiple strangulation marks around their necks, suggesting that the rope had been tightened and loosened over and over again. I find that pretty sick. Investigators determined the murder of this young couple had been straight up torture. The area where Jesse and Patricia had been found was also known as Lover's Lane, as we know. It was a road that had been pushed in. There was a cul-de-sac at the end. It was about a quarter mile into the woods and very secluded. The ground was littered with cigarette butts and beer bottles. People went there to drink, smoke, and screw. It was also located right on the county line between Orange County and Durham. An extensive investigation began between multiple agencies, including the Orange County Sheriff's Department, the Durham Police Department, and the SBI and FBI. As Detective Tim Horn put it, there was a lack of collaboration between all different law enforcement agencies at the time. Everybody individually worked on the case, Horn said. It didn't catch a whole lot of traction. There was a lot of work done, but it was individual. Not a lot of information was being shared by the various agencies, so there was some missed opportunities. Through the chaos, however, there emerged a couple of decent suspects. Some were cleared by polygraph tests, others failed. One in particular was a doctor of Watts Hospital who worked with Patricia. He repeatedly refused to cooperate with law enforcement, casting himself in an increasingly suspicious light. The doctor was the focus in 1971, and Horn says he's still the focus today. No one ever really zeroed in on any of the suspects, Horn said. The case went cold. Tim Horn worked for the Orange County Sheriff's Department in 2014. Carolyn Spivy contacted him with rumors and tips she had heard or been told, including a possible suspect. Horn, along with his partner, Detective Don Hunter, opened up the cold case and began pouring through the old boxes of records and evidence. For years, they rechecked the suspects, looking for new ones, and amassed as much information as they could. Putting all the puzzle pieces together where the multiple agencies originally failed. 
The original investigators who were still alive got phone calls from Horn and Hunter asking them to come down to the sheriff's office and go back over the case details with them. I put on a presentation and put on all the evidence I had, Horn said. There was silence in the room. Most of the information that Horn presented was new to some or all of the investigators because the different agencies investigating back in 1971 had not actually shared information with each other. You know, like they should have. <laughs> if they had, Horn believes it might have made a difference. Only one suspect is still alive, the doctor from Watts Hospital. Horn won't exactly say why the doctor is a suspect, but shares that when the original investigators asked him to do a lie detector test, he called his lawyer and declined. Sounds kind of sus. <laughs> now, nearly 50 years later, Horn asked the doctor to provide a DNA sample. The doctor called his lawyer and declined yet again. And yes, yes, that's very suspicious. <laughs> Though it's been decades, Horn still believes he can close this case and he's going to do it with DNA. MVAC is a wet vacuum DNA collection system that can extract DNA from difficult places. Like, say, the knotted ropes used to tie up and strangle Jesse and Patricia. Only 80 MVAC machines exist in the world, and the U.S. has 40 of them, including the one belonging to Guilford County, North Carolina. Horn intends to put it to good use. What a horrible tragedy, especially for young kids just starting out their lives to be kidnapped and abducted from a lover's lane, transported to a second lover's lane, and then marched up a small embankment bound and tied to a tree and then strangled. Horn said, We believe and we've had a lot of consultants look at this. Everybody's in agreement. Somewhere on that rope, you're going to have a suspect's profile. And this new technique is the best one to obtain that DNA. So we're very hopeful. Unfortunately, this murder remains unsolved. It really does feel like this kind of crime exists in a different world. I'm not totally sure that it would happen in today's age with the technology that exists. Well, I mean, it would happen, but we're much more likely to catch them. And another question, are lover lanes even still a thing anymore? If they are, let me know. I do have some bucket list items to check off. <laughs> I won't be doing that over Valentine's Day though. And you should probably stay away from fooling around in parked cars in secluded areas, just in case. Remember, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and don't get murdered. <laughs> <laughs>